Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How come behold the wondrous mystery indeed? That song moves me every time, especially I think the third or fourth line in, Christ upon the tree. He would give his life for you and me. It's so wonderful. My name is Adam, as uh, Pastor Paul introduced me. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you this morning to share your precious time with me as I share God's word with you. I appreciate uh, Pastor Paul as well. He's been a friend to me in a pretty difficult time, and uh, his shepherd's heart has been evident to my wife and I during this time and our family. So really thankful to be able to be here and to share in this opportunity. And it's good to see you too, Mina. Hi. <laughs> you mentioned I was Mina's youth pastor. She was always sweet. We just we we just raised her up to be our babysitter is really what we we're all about. So so um, before we get into Zephaniah, which if you have your Bibles, it'd be great if you could turn there. Um, pastor Paul did invite me to share a little bit about what uh, we are up to as a family. And um, recently, over the last, actually it's been probably a year or more since the kind of idea and vision started to develop, but especially over the last few months, and then officially last week, we incorporated as a nonprofit organization, we are launching a ministry called Wilson Family Ministries. And so here's our family. Paul mentioned uh, some of our uh, names here, but that's my wife, Katie, and then three of our four boys, the other one's in Atlanta. Uh, He's 18. His name's Mason. And then we got Dutro, who's nine. Ames is seven. He's the one that gave me the shiner. Uh, It was a knee from the top ropes of the arm of our couch during a a mighty wrestle match. And then Aiden, uh, our two-and-a-half-year-old, and and he looks a little bit older now. This picture's actually from last year, but uh, that rounds out our little family, and it's a joy to be here with you guys today, the bulk of us. And so the vision that God has given us uh, for ministry uh, moving into the future Uh, is Wilson Family Ministries. We want to operate, my wife and I and our boys, if they grow uh, into a desire to serve in ministry as well, we want to operate in a ministry where we can serve the body of Christ, churches, basically be missionaries, in a sense, to the local church, but specifically to individuals in two ways. Um, One way is to create content. I love teaching theology. I love teaching apologetics, Bible, uh, teaching the Bible. And I've created several classes and used to teach adult Sunday school classes at the church I was involved in. And um, we have a few invitations, including at, if you've heard of uh, Sozo and Runner Park, to teach classes there to students, including um, Sonoma State University students and and really anybody who would like to come and join and be a part of that. Um, But the second part, besides ministry content, is to operate out of a ministry platform called Holy Free, which you see up on the screen as well free to thrive in freedom. And our heart is to bring awareness and an opportunity to integrate emotional health into our spiritual health. I heard this quote a few, um, uh, it's been about a year now. Um, I heard this quote from a Christian leader. It's actually the subtitle of his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it says, "Without it says it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And one of the things that we have experienced as a family is thinking that we are spiritual, spiritually mature because we exercise spiritual disciplines, Christian disciplines. We read and meditate on the scripture. We memorize scripture. We pray. We join in fellowship together. But something that was lacking in our lives in particular was a pursuit of emotional health integrating with our spiritual health. 
In other words, things like a theology of suffering. We've been through some pretty traumatic suffering over the last year, and we didn't really have a framework by which we could engage that. Um, of course, we had friends and we had the scripture, but we didn't have something uh, in, that was alive inside of us by which we could engage the suffering that we were going through because we weren't really aware of how to identify it or to give a language to it. So that's one example. Um, but a lot of things like relating responsibly, conflict resolution, setting and respecting healthy boundaries in our lives, those are the things that we see, that we've experienced, and we see um, by and large in an increasing matter. It's kind of lacking within the community of faith, and we think that that's really important, so we want to be able to offer that. So that's it about that for now. Wilson Family Ministries and Holy Free, if you have any questions or like to know more, please come and talk to myself my wife after service. We'd love to chat with you about that. But for now, let's get into Zephaniah. So we've been going through the minor prophets, and um, when uh, Pastor Paul asked me if I would be able to fill in for him on a Sunday, we we picked a date. I picked a day because it's Cookie Sunday, so it made sense. Um, actually, I didn't know that, but I'm glad it worked out that way. Um, and uh, he said, if you don't mind picking up from where we are in our series, you would be in Zephaniah. I said, okay, Zephaniah, great. Is that in the Apocrypha? Where it's, what's Zephaniah? So... <laughs> Um, just kidding. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time since I've spent time in the Minor Prophets and especially in Zephaniah. So it, it felt like a kind of renewed challenge and experience to meet the Lord in the prophecy of Zephaniah. So I'm excited to share that with you today. So as we turn to Zephaniah, if you're there already, we're going to begin with a little bit of the background and I will read verse one to help get our background going. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So like a lot of the minor prophets, we don't get to know too much about who they are besides their name and sometimes a little introduction of their background or history. And it's the same for Zephaniah, kind of an obscure person within the canon of Scripture. But we do get a little bit of a background here. It seems that if the Hezekiah that's mentioned is, of course, the great king, Hezekiah, that Zephaniah would be the great-great-grandson of that king, Hezekiah. And if that's true, then it's likely that Zephaniah was of some influence. Of course, he came from an influential family, so he probably had some sort of influence Uh, by which in his pursuit of God and the things of God, God could speak through him influentially. And we'll see that that likely is what happened as we move on together. So Zephaniah, the name Zephaniah means the Lord hides. It's one of the possible, most likely meanings of Zephaniah's name. And one commentator said that his name may mean that he was hidden as a person with royal blood, of course, being related to Hezekiah, at the time of his birth, during the violence of the evil king Manasseh, which would have been his great uncle, uh, it was um, pretty common to hide those of royal blood when there was an adversary uh, in charge in order to protect that bloodline. So it's very likely that that's why he was named Zephaniah. He was one of the true prophets prophesying during King Josiah's reign. This places the time of his prophecy around 630 B.C. 
and makes him a contemporary with Jeremiah and Habakkuk, who both also prophesied of Judah's destruction. And we'll see that's what Zephaniah is all about as well. Um, as well as Nahum, who we learned a few weeks ago here at Soma, um, prophesied against Nineveh's destruction there in Assyria. So it was a contemporary with other prophets um, at the same time there. And it seems like his prophecy might have helped lead to some of the reforms that King Josiah implemented. Um, And for a time, it looked like Israel or Judah was going to experience revival. And that lasted for a time, but then it ended. And of course, the impending judgment came upon Judah and they were besieged by and exiled by the great nation of Babylon. So let's look at the outline for Zephaniah. Uh, The outline involves the simple basic outline, the introduction, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, the day of the Lord coming on Judah and the nations, and that's chapter 1, verses 4 through 18. And third, God's judgment on the nations outside of Judah, and that's Verses chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 8. And then the redemption of the remnants. And this seems to be a common theme within the prophets as well, right? Usually the wrath of God is leading the charge, and then there is a glimmer of hope that God provides through promising to redeem a remnant and preserve a remnant um, of his people. And that's chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And another commentator said, his message was a warning of Yahweh's wrath against false loyalties, a call to return to a loving creator, and hope for the faithful remnant. And that pretty much forms um, the outline for the message today, which is the wrath of God, the love of God, and the faithfulness of God. These themes appear throughout the book but we're going to try to go through them kind of um, systematically. So there's three chapters in the prophecy of Zephaniah, 53 verses. We're going to try to read or get through 30 verses. The verses in between are just extra commentary on what's already been said. So to save time, we're going to go through 30 verses, or we're going to try. So Zephaniah's prophecy begins with a very striking declaration. There's a lot of popular ways to start a book right? Um, Call Me Ishmael is a popular beginning to a book. Anybody know the book that that beginning line comes from? Okay, it's not as popular as I thought, I guess. Moby Dick. Moby Dick, the beginning words to Moby Dick are Call Me Ishmael. And uh, there's a, as I said, as I mentioned, there's a lot of popular, but I don't think there's any as striking as this introduction. As we look at verse 2, you'll see what I mean here. He opens up with these words from the Lord. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, it sounds to me like God has had enough with something, and we're going to find out what that is. But this is a very striking way to begin a prophecy. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is very strong language. As we'll see, there's a little bit of hyperbole going on here because ultimately there will be a remnant. And if there's a remnant, that doesn't mean that everything was swept away. But God in his anger is using strong language. 
and he's justified in that, we will see as we get to the reasons why. He's going to, re, he's going to keep a remnant. Now the earth, the, the word earth at the end of the sentence there is the Hebrew word Adama, which is actually where my name comes from, Adam. It means earth, but in particular it means the agricultural earth, the earth that you can till and grow um, uh, agricultural products from. And so the idea here is a scorched earth policy. In other words, God is going to use the Babylonians to come in and they're going to obliterate the earth, the use of the earth, the usefulness of the earth as, we, as they come in judgment against Judah, God's people there. But it's also a portent, a portent, important, but also a portent or harbinger of a future reality. That God, you'll see the, the phrase used, the day of the Lord, often in here. And of course, it is talking about, in the immediate context, the judgment that God's going to bring on Judah through the Babylonians, just as he had on Assyria or on Israel through the Assyrians. God's going to bring that judgment, it will be sure. But he's also going to bring a future judgment on an unbelieving and idolatrous world. As well, So it's a bit of a harbinger for that future reality. But staying in the context here, we'll move on to verse 4 and see that God begins with his own people as he prophesies against Judah. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Again, strong language here. And we see one commentator has pointed out that there are five offenses here, five specific offenses that God is calling out against his people and giving the reason for why he's going to bring judgment. Let's look at those offenses here. First, he says, I will wipe away every remnant of Baal. The idolatrous worship of this false god, or really demon, Baal was prevalent within God's people. Secondly, the pagan and idolatrous people, or priests, those who were supposed to represent God to the nation, were pagan and idolatrous. Third, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. They're worshiping things of creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. Fourth, those who turn back, I'm sorry, those who swear by the Lord and interestingly enough, by Molech, another false god. And fifth, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Now, I thought I would kind of put this into today's terms for us. Of course, this is what was going on back then. And we don't really evoke the name of Baal or Molech or these other idols in our lives. We might not invoke the name, but we do certainly invoke the spirits. And we see that even in our experience here in the United States. Um, Number one, the marketing of sexual immorality. Baal was the fertility god and so they would involve they would engage in sexually immoral acts in order to evoke favor from the fertility god and it was something that was solicited and marketed among 
the nation. Sounds familiar. The promotion of ungodly practices and idolatrous pursuits. Sounds familiar. New Age spiritualism and astrology. Sounds familiar. Human sacrifice, especially infants and children. Or you might also say using Bible verses on billboards to invite people to have abortions. Sounds familiar. Spiritual deconstructionism and nominalism. In other words, walking away from the Lord or claiming to belong to the Lord but living a life that's completely separate from Him. That sounds familiar. Now, of course, this prophecy is for Judah, but the principles of it are also, also represent the heart and nature of God. The heart and nature of God, the law of God. And he wants his people to have relationship with him. He is a jealous God, as we learned I, when I was here and Paul was teaching through Nahum, and we're talking about the jealousy of God. He is a jealous God. He does not want his people to pursue things that are going to destroy them. He wants them to pursue him so that he can give them life and be in relationship with them. And so he says in verse 15, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish. Listen to this. A day of trouble and ruin. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. He just continues to express these doomsday, this doomsday type of language. I'm going to read that again. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to hear these encouraging words? Years ago, I um, came across this really neat little niche of uh, what's a website called despair.com. And it sounds terrible, but it's actually really humorous. They produce these demotivational calendars and posters. So, of course, all of us have heard about motivational quotes and motivational calendars, things like that, things to keep us inspired as we're in the daily grind. Well, they put a spin on that and produce these demotivational calendars. And so one of them has a picture of a soccer player laying on his side holding his leg, and it says... If you want to win points for whining, join a European soccer team. Another one has a picture of this ship that's sunk and the bow is sticking out of the sea and it's all rusty and it says, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That seems to be true of Judah. And here's my favorite one. There's a picture, it's a beautiful picture of this river, but it's pretty gloomy because the sun is setting and everything's starting to get dark. And it says, despair. It's always darkest just before it turns pitch black. I think those are great. Those motivate me and humor. But on a more serious note, they also remind me of the reality of what God is speaking to uh, Judah. In this prophecy, that day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Not a good verse to put on your refrigerator. We're coming to one that's good to put on your refrigerator, but it is a good reminder of the wrath of God 
the anger of God towards sin, the anger of God towards those who have experienced prosperity from God, who have been giving life and breath, yet use that life and breath to turn away from God, and not only to turn away from him, but to do to him or before him that which is vile and evil. This is God's anger and wrath coming through. And so verse 18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. There's nothing that can save them. Their own riches, their own wealth, their own attempts cannot save them from the day of God's wrath. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is able to make it come to pass. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. And then he gives a call to action, beginning in Zephaniah 2, verse 1. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Here Zephaniah calls for individual and national repentance. But he also indicates that protection for those who fear God is not necessarily guaranteed under the circumstances of Israel's or Judah's sin. Sometimes it's the case that the righteous suffer because of the actions of the unrighteous. It was certainly Israel's case. And maybe you've experienced that as well. We have seen that throughout history. But God always reveals his faithfulness to the faithful, as we will see. Then he turns his sights from Judah in particular and goes to um, the Philistines, which was down in kind of north or sorry, southeast Israel there along the Mediterranean. He's going to bring words of judgment against them. He says in verse 4, Gaza will be abandoned and Eshkelon left in ruins. At midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. These are all cities within Philistia where the Philistines lived. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Carathite people! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, and none will be left. Has anybody met a Philistine? No, they don't exist anymore. They've either been destroyed or uh, integrated into other people groups. It's very interesting, just a little side note here. Has anybody ever heard of an Ammonite? Has anybody ever heard of an Edomite? We don't hear about these nations anymore. But think about the faithfulness of God. Historically speaking, there has never been a nation who has been displaced from their land, who has survived for more than 500 years with their own language, culture, religion. Never. Except Israel. Except the Jews. And they haven't just done it once. They've done it three times. And the last time was almost 2,000 years. And of course, they're back in the land now since the declaration that was made in 1948, restoring the Jews to their land. And so uh, I heard um, 
I heard this story once of a soldier who was sharing the Lord with uh, his other, with the other soldiers that were with him. And his commanding officer finally said to him, Give, tell me in three sentences why I should believe in God. And he said, I can tell you in three words, sir. The Jew, sir. In other words, God has been faithful to the people that he called, and that's been demonstrated through even though they've been exiled, they've been away from their land, they've been in a place where other nations would forget all about their culture, all about their language, all about their faith or their religion. He's been faithful to retain that within Israel. That's pretty amazing. I think that is a miracle, especially when we consider world history. So as he turns to the Philistines here, from Judah to the Philistines, it's like, it's like God is beginning to call out these other nations. And uh, he's saying, you know, to all these cities, I'm going to put you in timeout. I will take away your toys. I'm going to make you go to bed early. And then he turns and he says, you think that's funny? Wait till you see what I have in store for you. So now it's against Moab and Ammon, which is east of the Jordan, across the Jordan River, east of Israel there. He says in verse 8, I have heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. Israel's enemies were also idolatrous and to be held accountable. Their lands will be inhabited by the remnant of Israel. We're starting to see glimmers of hope. Because before God was saying, that's it, I'm done. Almost like he did with Moses. And he said, watch out Moses, I'm going to wipe out all of my people. And then Moses interceded. And like he said to Noah, I'm, I'm going to destroy everything and everyone. And he's using that strong language here again to evoke passion from his passion, to evoke repentance that his people would come back to him. But he's beginning to show this shimmer of hope to the remnant, the remnant that he is faithful to. Then he turns again to Cush, which is Ethiopia, and Assyria. So we have the Philistines to the south and west. We have the Ammonites to the, and, the, and the Moabites to the east. We have Ethiopia to the south. And we have Assyria to the north and to the east. North, south, east, and west. And the center point of the compass, Judah. Nobody is faithful to God. Nobody. They're all going to be judged. And so he says in verse 12, You too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert, just as Nahum prophesied as well. No one can get it right. North, south, east, west, and at the epicenter of Judah. Nobody can get it right. Everybody is in self-destruct mode. A few years ago, I was cleaning out the back of our Sienna minivan, and I hadn't cleaned it out for like two years. And unfortunately, I hadn't made my sons do it. 
And as I like, I had to, as I like pulled out the seats and saw the catastrophe that had taken place in the back of the van, I realized the back of our van is like a third world country. It's unsanitary. There's poor hygiene. There's constant famine. The self-appointed leaders are selfish and corrupt. Civil war is pervasive. It really is like a third world country. So I aptly named it Back of Vanistan. By the way, they have horrible foreign relations with front of Vanistan. Our nature is to self-destruct. We leave a trail, a wake of destruction and chaos behind us, even from childhood. Even if we can appear to have it all together on the outside and have the back of our van clean, there's, it's still within our nature to self-destruct and to be against God. It's human nature. It's the sin nature. The Lord looks down from the heavens on the sons of men to see if there are any who, are, who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one is righteous. No, not one. Psalm 14 and verse 3. They've all like sheep gone astray. They've all turned to their own way. Isaiah 53, 6. They've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. God now turns from the nations outside of Judah and comes back to Judah and Jerusalem in particular. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. This is speaking of the city of Jerusalem. City of God. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. God is fed up with the people who have prospered under his care, only to return his loving kindness with the adultery of idolatry and disregard for his truth. Verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. We see a contrast between God and his people. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. And every day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. We're beginning to see the light of his love. As we move into the fall and winter seasons, especially in the mornings, I think it was 36 degrees this morning. It's cold, right? But it's always nice right at sunrise, you get that glimmer of light. But just like the, when the glimmer of light comes, the chill of dawn is still upon you. And so, like the breaking of dawn on a cold winter's day, you see the light, but there's still a, a thick chill in the air. We see that continuing in verse 7. I said to the city, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling would not be cut off, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. This reminds me of Jeremiah, what he said in chapter 7 and verse 28. Therefore say to them, the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord, its, its God, or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. 
He continues in verse 8, chapter 3 of Zephaniah. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by, my fire, by the fire of my jealous anger. Once again, seeing the strong language, even back the beginning or the middle section here of chapter 3, looking back to the beginning of chapter 1, the strong language of God in his jealous anger. But now he begins to reveal the warmth of his love along with its light. Verse 9. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. God will cleanse and purify his people. Now we are, sen- we are seeing and sensing not just the wrath of God, not just glimmers of light of the love of God, but now the faithfulness of God. Continues in verse 15. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, the true King of Israel. Israel had kings. Judah had kings. They weren't the true kings of God's people. God is the true king of Israel. The king of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Write a song. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is, this is a verse you could put on your refrigerator. This is, I think, probably the favorite verse. Out of many wrathful verses, this is one that is not so wrathful. In fact, it's very loving and faithful. In Zephaniah, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Question. How can God do this considering his holiness and our sinfulness. How can God turn from his wrath towards an unbelieving and idolatrous world and pursue us with love and faithfulness to redeem us? How can that happen? I know you know the answer. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And I know Paul faithfully preaches the gospel here in this church, but I just want to take a second to talk about the gospel as we conclude. A few years ago, um, I felt like the Lord gave me this parable that I call the guilty judge. Now, it's not entirely mine. A lot of it is borrowed from the ministries of Living Waters, Ray Comfort, who's an evangelist. If you haven't heard of him, I highly encourage you to look into his resources they have there. But of course, um, Ray Comfort has helped us to understand again, like many preachers before him have, that it's important to bring the law of God to convict the sinner about the righteousness of God to show them their need for salvation through Jesus, the Son of God. 
And he does it in a very simple way. He just uses the Ten Commandments to be able to show what sin is. I think one thing that our culture doesn't understand is what sin is. Very simple to explain it, but we take it for granted that they know what sin is. Everybody knows generally what sin is, but if I tell somebody, you know, the 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 um, ninth commandment says, "Thou shalt not lie." Have you ever told a lie? Of course, I've told a lie. Everybody's lied. What does that make you? What do you call somebody who tells a lie? A liar. The seventh commandment says, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." But Jesus said, "Even if you look at another person and lust upon them in your heart." God sees the lust of your heart and you have committed adultery in God's eyes. Have you ever done anything like that? Of course I have. Everybody has. What does that make you? I guess an adulterer. God's eyes? Yeah. The sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. But Jesus said, Even if you hate somebody in your heart, you've committed murder against them. Have you ever done anything like that? Yes. What does that make you? A murderer. So you're telling me, you're admitting to me that at heart, at least... You are a lying, adulterous murderer. And you're going to have to stand before God. If we go through all ten commandments, you will see that we've broken all ten commandments. I'll put it this way. If I sin five times in a day, which is probably pretty conservative, if I sin five times in a day, then in a year I will sin 1,825 times. If I live to be 70, I would have broken God's law over 127,000 times. Now, when when you stand before a judge and you have over 127,000 crimes that you're being accused for, what are the chances that you think that judge is going to just let you go? Probably not very good. Well, this is what the Bible teaches. We're going to stand before God and give an account for the crimes that we've committed against God and his holy nature. And when we stand before God, it's going to be obvious that we're guilty for breaking his crimes. The parable of the guilty judge goes something like this. The judge is in his judge's booth, and he's about to wrap his gavel, declaring us guilty, sending us to the punishment that we deserve. Somebody comes and stands next to me. He says, wait a minute, judge. I know that Adam is guilty of breaking your law, and that he deserves the punishment that you're about to mete out on him. But I want you to take all of the wrongdoing, all of the crimes that he's committed, and every way that he's broken your law, place it upon me, and let him go free. The judge looks at this man and sees, one, that he's not a debtor to the law himself. He doesn't have any crimes that he has to pay for. Two, that somehow he's able to afford to pay for the crimes that I've committed. So then he looks at me. He says, this man has offered to take your punishment. But I'm not going to just rule that that will be the case unless you were willing to accept. I taught this in a prison in Mitigo, mostly predominantly um, uh, nominal Muslims there. is in Mitigo, northern Uganda. I got to teach this in a prison. They were living in these little metal huts, 12 people in a small little hut, probably no bigger than 10 feet. They had a big field they could spread out in, but they were locked into these huts at night. And I shared through an interpreter this message. I said, how many of you, when you were sentenced to come to this place, if somebody came and said, I want you to take their penalty and put it upon me and let them go free, how many of you would have said yes? Of course, every hand, when the interpreter communicated, every hand went up. And so I got to tell him about the good news about Jesus. He might not get you out of prison, which is probably what you want, but he's getting you out of a graver circumstance. 
which is the prison of eternal hell and separation from God. And when I put my faith in this man who stood next to me and wanted to take my penalty upon himself, since this man is no less than Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, the second person of the Godhead, it was as if the judge got up out of his judge's bench, came down to where I was standing, took off his robe of righteousness, put it on me, took off my prisoner's clothes, put it on himself, picked up the gavel, wrapped the gavel, and declared himself guilty of the crimes that I committed. I've never known any judge that's ever done that. I got a speeding ticket when I was in my late teens. I had a Mustang GT 5.0. I think I was going 90 and a 55. I should have gone to prison forever. I went before the judge. I tried. I was hoping the officer wouldn't show up. Of course he did. I went before the judge. I tried to get uh, traffic school, tried to get a reduced sentence. You know, didn't want to get a ding on my already expensive insurance. And the judge was merciful. He reduced my penalty that I had to pay. He let me go to traffic school and avoided me having to, you know, increase my insurance premium. But here's what the judge did not do. The judge did not say, you know what? I'm going to go to traffic school. I'm going to pay your fine. And if there's any increase in your insurance premium, I'm going to cover that. It would have been very nice of the judge to do that, but he did not do that. And that was just for a parking or a speeding ticket. The judge of the universe who created you and created me was willing to lay his life down on the cross so that he could absorb and take on the wrath of God for every sin that we had ever committed, every crime that we had ever committed against him. He declared himself guilty for. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the faithfulness of God. This is why he can say, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you. Sing. We'll finish with these last two verses and then we'll pray. He says at the close of Zephaniah, the last two verses in chapter 3, At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prophecy of Zephaniah. We thank you, Lord, that you sought fit in your wisdom and sovereignty to contain this tiny little seemingly obscure prophecy in the middle or at the end of the Old Testament, as it were, that we have before us. We thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself as exactly who you are. A benevolent creator who, in righteous jealousy and anger, pursues his people, giving them warning and correction because they are headed toward a bridge that is out, a cliff. Worse than that, They are headed to a place that has been created for Satan and his demons. 
They're headed to eternal separation torment apart from you, God. That's why you are jealous. That's why you are angry. That's why you are wrathful. God, we thank you that you are also good, loving, faithful. God, that you had a plan to be able to redeem us that did not violate your justice, that exalted your mercy and your grace toward those that you created. And we ask you, God, that you would do a work in our hearts that would cause us to turn toward you. There is anything that's keeping us there is anything that is keeping us God from enjoying your grace and your love in our lives please help us turn from those things and turn to you God that we may also be able to be an influence toward those around us teaching them of your great love and the truth of your gospel we thank you for this time Lord thank you for your word we pray that you go before us and cause us to be able to live and move in your grace. In Jesus' name.